The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's sermon scripture is Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Thank you, Jackie. Please be seated. Thank you, Devin and musicians, too, for helping us worship. I don't see very many June bugs hopping around, so Beverly, thank you for getting a fly swatter and killing all of those. Thank you for being here in the middle of the heat. Uh, Most Christians understand pretty well that God has sufficiently communicated himself, his word, and his will in his written word through the church and most of all through Jesus Christ. But there is often this kind of nagging feeling that most Christians get at some time in their life that wish God would at least every once in a while do something really, really loud and big and undeniable because sometimes we just feel like our faith would be a little bit stronger if God would do something like that. Just every once in a while, some miracle that was undeniable by anybody that God was active or in, in, in doing something in our lives. That's how we feel, I think. Sometimes we pray for an agnostic or an atheist friend or something, and we say, because they have said repeatedly, you know, I don't believe in God, and I don't think there's enough evidence for God, and, and I, if he would just do something, you know, maybe I would believe in him. So we, sometimes we pray, oh, Lord, send, please send some gigantic, spectacular, undeniable explosion or miracle or something so that they would be able to say, I can't deny it anymore. We feel like praying that. In the early part of the 20th century, one of the most famous agnostic atheist philosophers was Bertrand Russell. He's a great mathematician, but he was so vocal against God. And somebody asked him, what would you say if you found yourself, Dr. Russell, found yourself standing in front of God at the day of judgment, and God said, why didn't you believe in me? And, and Bertrand Russell famously said, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Now, there's plenty of evidence for God, that we, and we know that. But anyway, we know also people don't come to faith that way. It doesn't work that way. We didn't come to faith that way either. No matter what God could do for atheists and agnostics, even if he did it, it still wouldn't be seen as the work of God. The Bible consistently just assumes God exists. And that he's very active, very evident, very obvious. 
What unbelievers need is to first be healed of their blindness and deafness. That's the first work that the Holy Spirit would have to do. Paul, in Romans 1, reminds us that sinners exchange the glory of God, which Paul, in that chapter, says is very evident. They exchange it for uh, a God of, of, of humans or animals, images that they make up. Now, in this psalm, Psalm 29, the main image is the metaphor of God as lightning and thunder or a thunderstorm. I think it was useful to Israel for them because it reminded them who God was. Reminding Israel over and over again that there was only one God was terribly necessary, especially as they entered into the promised land, which was sort of idolatry on steroids. Every high, there was high places built all over the place and, and poles and statues and idols and and Moses told them over and over and over again, every time he go in there, cut down those high places, cut down those poles, burn those idols, burn everything. You, you need reminders only that there is only one God. Because after all, what is the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? You remember? Pause. You shall have no other gods before me. We need those same reminders. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. So we need to continually consider the uniqueness and majesty and power of God. And Psalm 29 is one of those, and many psalms like it, that help us to do that. Even us, not just Israel, but us. Psalm 29, the writer takes us on a really quick tour. He moves us from one place to another and back to the start. He shows us what God is doing in heaven, and then what he's doing on earth, and then he goes back up to heaven again, and he expects us to have a specific reaction to that. So let the word of God, as it always should, let it speak to you and instruct you. Now, this sermon divides up into three obvious parts. If you were looking at your Bible while Jackie read that, the glory of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and the throne of the Lord, okay? So first, the glory of the Lord. He said, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name and worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, glory is a big word in the Bible. It's all over the place. There's one, it's one of those half dozen words that's super important in the Bible. Let's remind ourselves what glory is, right? The glory of something is, is what it is in essence. It's, it's its true reality. It's related to what its purpose is. It's related to what its function is. It's related to its perfection. Glory is partly related to what someone is compared to others in a similar class. So among the many things that can be said, glory can be seen in an object or an event, and glory can be seen in the author or the creator of of an event or an object. So I want you to consider this, all right? Just look up here and just consider this scenario. It's fictitious, but it might help you to see something. So I say to you, I, I have a race car. You're stunned and say, like, what? I would... I'd like to see the race car. And so I, I pull out a sketch of a race car. And it's really, really well done. It's a really good sketch, colored and everything. And I say, I was the one that, I, I did that. I have some artistic talent, and I, I sketched my race car. And you're pretty impressed because you didn't know I had artistic talent. And of course, but you're thinking to yourself, well, that's not a race car. That's a two-dimensional piece of paper is what it is. And I said, come here. Follow me, I want to show you something. And I, and, I, and I take you in another room and I show you a model of a race car. 
the same thing that's in the picture, but this is a three-dimensional model. It's about this big. It's really, really well done. I mean, it's intricate in its details, and you can lift up the hood and see the engine, which is very realistic. You can open up the doors and look inside the, 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 the inside of it, and, and the steering wheel works, and the tires are made out of rubber, and it's really cool. And I say, I actually made this model. I made this model from scratch. And you're quite impressed with that, that somebody could make a model of a race car this big. But of course, you're thinking to yourself, well, that's not really a race car. That's a model of a race car. But I said, I, I, I have a race car. And so I said, come here, I'm going to show you something. Come into my garage. And sure enough, inside the garage is a real, live, working race car. And you are absolutely stunned. After a while, you open up the hood. It's, it's an unbelievably powerful engine. You're going on the inside and the outside and underneath, and you're, this is a real race car. And I say, I, I actually built this race car. I made it myself. I mean, I made this from scratch. It took me a long time, but I did that. You... You would just be dumbfounded at that. It would take you a long time to get over the race car that I built and me, the builder of it. But then eventually you'd say to yourself, actually, a race car in a garage is just a car in a garage. A race car is a car that races. And then I pull out of my pocket tickets to a race. And it's a ticket to the race that I'm going to race in with my car. And so indeed you go and you see the car race and me driving it. And I, I got to end this story really well. So I, I win the race in record time. It's a world record. And you are just stunned to see the race car be what it is. Now go in the future 20 years. You're in a, the Smithsonian Museum. And lo and behold, there is my car that I built, that I raced, that I won. It's sitting in there. And you're looking at it. And you're thinking like, that's the car. I was at the race. I saw that car. Guy comes up to you and says, that car is really, really cool. Uh, what do you know about it? And he said, like, I, and you say, you say, I saw this race car in its glory. Now, you don't bring up the sketch or the model or the car in the garage. You, you say, I saw the car in its glory. And not only that, I know the guy, me, I know the guy who built this. And so after admiring it, the focus of the attention would sort of shift from the car to the, to the driver, the guy who, me, who, who created it, who built it, who won the race. I want you to just think about something about, uh, in a way, what stage are you in in your understanding of the glory of God? Let me just say this. You have tickets to the race, but you haven't seen that yet. That's coming. That'll be the full thing. I'm looking forward to that. But, but, but is the glory of God a sketch to you? Is it a model? Is the glory of God life-size? That's something we have to grow in. But notice that the glory moves from the object to the creator. Sometimes you see the glory of a person by how far they excel at something. At any sport in the Olympics, there's always uh, the glory of the athlete. Now, you, if you wanted, what's, what's the opposite of glory? I'm not exactly sure, but if I was to go into the Olympics, that would be, I would represent that well. Yes, I won a bronze medal in the 84 Olympics for synchronized swimming. Yes, but that's in the past. Let's not worry about that. No, I, I, would, I would just be such a, it would be such a travesty for me to do anything that was going on in the Olympics. But, but when those, those people are superior and they really show the glory of the body and the glory of their expertise in it, that's, that's sort of like the height of something that we're thinking of. 
think about this. I want you to consider the following four scenarios. Let me give you another picture, okay? One more good picture here. Ready? Four different scenarios. I accidentally throw a rock and it breaks a window of a man's house. The man forgives me and pays for the window himself. Scenario two. I accidentally throw a rock. It breaks a window and it hits his son who's on the inside. It hits his son on the head. The man forgives me, treats his son. He pays for the window. Scenario three, I purposely throw a rock. It breaks a window. It hits his son. And it kills him. The man forgives me of everything. Scenario four, I purposely throw a rock through the window. Hit the man's son. It kills him. He forgives me, pays for my college, and lets me work in his company. Now, you cannot deny that the four men are forgiving. All four of them forgave. And they, they forgive what doesn't deserve to be forgiven. But which man deserves the greater glory? You know, forgiveness four times but forgiveness is also glorified in the amount that is forgiven. I want you to think about this. You'll know from that illustration who deserves the greater glory of the four people. Do you see how the glory of forgiveness is accentuated by, by the difference between the forgiver and the forgiven and how much was forgiven? Here's, here's where Jesus' short parable to a Pharisee is important from Luke chapter 7. Let me paraphrase this and modernize this, okay? Two debtors owed a creditor money. One owed $50, the other owed $50,000. This is Jesus' parable, modernized. The creditor forgave them both. Jesus asked, which one will love the creditor more? He doesn't have to answer the question because the answer to the question is obvious. The creditor is the same in both instances, but the glory of the creditor is magnified by the greater amount forgiven. It is important to Jesus that, that people understand his glory. He was very, very intentional about that, and it makes a difference. The more you're able to understand the glory of God, the glory of Christ, it makes a difference. Jesus showed his three closest disciples a glimpse of his glory in what we call the transfiguration. So he took Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain. And he changed before them into the radiant image of who he was in glory with the Father before he took on human flesh. And God the Father's voice was heard and said, like, you listen to him, this is my son. But, but they saw the Jesus before he came, became a man. They saw Jesus in his glory, the way he really is. And it permanently changed those disciples. As imperfect as they remained, they were permanently changed. Now, if you're saved, this is the only Jesus that you're ever going to see, the transfigured Jesus, Jesus in all of his glory. You're not going to see the exact Jesus, the exact Jesus that was here on earth before he ascended back to his throne and took his glory again. Um, 
that's something for you to look forward to. But when that time comes, you also will have be glorified and have a glorified body and it's going to be a beautiful thing to see the glorified Christ again. Listen to this, you guys. Romans 3.23 says, and you memorize this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the problems with that verse is that we generally, we know it, but we quote the first part to sinners to try to get them to see something, but sometimes can forget about the second part. Let me just say this, the glory of God is ultimately Jesus Christ. God's Son come in human flesh. He's the glory of God because God, who is spirit, is invisible. No one can directly see God and still live, but God still wants his glory understood, even if it's in part right now. His glory, God's glory, who he really is, is manifested in Jesus. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Standing, this is the most negative thing I'm going to say today. Let me, let me just get it through, though, and get through it, and then I'll, I'll be a little more positive. Standing next to the Lord Jesus, the sinless Son of God, you are seen as a total failure. You fall short. You miss the mark. He perfectly images God, and you and I have fallen woefully short of that. We were made, you guys, from the beginning to image God, and all of us have instead made God try to look like us. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is put on our account that restores us to the image of God. This righteousness comes not by trying to be good, but through the faith that is in the action of God to save sinners in Christ or through Christ's work. When God saves sinners and makes them right, their destiny is glory. To be what we were made to be in the first place. Well, then the psalmist takes us from heaven down to earth. He shows us that God is there too. And here the psalmist moves. He moves us from the waters of the sea down through Canaan and over Lebanon and into the desert or the wilderness in the south. So number two, the voice of the Lord. In verses three through nine, the voice of the Lord is heard seven times. God speaks no words. He just thunders and flashes in a ferocious thunderstorm. Every child is born with, this is, this is really just a fact, every child is born with a fear of very, very loud noises. And so thunder, if you can remember that long ago, thunder and fireworks and, and guns and things like that are frightening to kids and, and dogs too. From childhood to today, even to today, as a matter of fact, just a couple days ago, I still count, <coughs> excuse me, count the number of seconds between the flash of lightning and the thunder and get some sort of an idea about how far away that lightning was and, and is the, the number of seconds getting less or more and is the storm going away or coming to me. I still do that. I've done that for a long time. North Carolina has one of the highest rates of fatalities from lightning strikes. That's because we have a lot of storms. Being the South, we have a lot of hikers, we have a lot of farmers, and we have a lot of golfers. And lightning loves those people. I, I, I think that if you get struck by lightning, your life is not probably going to be the same again. A veterinary student told me this. Cable may remember this couple. He told me that uh, more toward the middle of the state where you're there's more hills. Horses and cows get struck by lightning a lot, especially if there's more hills than it is a little bit flatter here because they love to be out in the rain. And so lots of times farmers will just 
you know, be going through their fields and find a dead horse or cow halfway burnt up because lightning struck them. But the psalmist sees a thunderstorm roll from the, the seas down to the south over the land of Israel. It crushes the mighty cedar trees of Lebanon. It makes Sirion, the, that's Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in the area, it makes it shake. And then the thunderstorm sweeps south over the southern deserts and the wilderness of Kadesh, where the children of Israel wandered for 40 years. In the Bible, thunder and lightning is associated with God's judgments. The book of Revelation, which is mostly about what's going on now, reports that in chapter 10, the apostle John heard, and I quote, the seven thunders speak. When he sees this vision and hears what the seven thunders say, he begins to write it down, and then he's told by an angel, don't write it down. Most of the judgments are recorded pretty well by John, and he, he, he writes in the seal trumpet, uh, uh, judgments and the trumpet judgments and so on, but he's told, don't write this down. And so we don't know what they are. The main thing to learn, though, is that God is actively judging the world now. He's not totally waiting for the end of time. God is actually actively judging now. Much of it is predicted and described in the book of Revelation, but some of it remains hidden. Now, you guys, the scientific explanation for thunderstorms is not that difficult. I can do it. I did it to eighth graders many, many years ago. Tom Miners can really, really do it well, I'm sure, our meteorologist. But we know that the world isn't really hearing that. It's not really understanding what the messages of God and the judgment of God is. The book of Revelation tells us that that when the new heaven and earth comes, all of that's going to be gone away. The sea, um, the desert, uh, all of that's going to be made brand new. But to tell that to an unbeliever, to tell that God is active, it just doesn't make sense to them. What concerns me, though, is not dangerous weather, but whether I'm hearing the voice of the Lord. So would you join in with me about that concern right now? Are you hearing the voice of the Lord? We know the world is not hearing the voice of God in the Bible, obviously. So it seems that God has to speak loudly to get people's attention. Right? When I was coaching soccer, if if a drill was just going into total chaos, I would blow my whistle loud. And if I did that, I didn't re-explain things. Everybody got on the line and we started doing sprints, right? When we, when we were in elementary school, I mean, I don't know, maybe they, they probably just don't do this. It's probably cruel and unusual punishment. But the teacher would flash the, the lights off in the classroom and then everybody like look around to get our attention because things were not going right. At least on television, when the courtroom is, is utter chaos, the judge brings out his gavel and, and everybody stops and gives him his attention. Now, I wonder, what does God have to do to get my attention? He's speaking, am I listening? I think that's a good question. I think you ought to answer that question. Are you listening to the Lord? Am I not hearing God very well because I just don't like what God is saying? Is that possible? Is it because I have filled my ears with other voices? Or am I just lazy? The voice of the Lord is speaking. I want to hear that. Lastly, the throne of the Lord. 
Verse 10 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The throne of the Lord. In 739, the Lord gave Isaiah a vision. Boy, did that change his life. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up the train of his robe, filled the temple. The angels surrounding God were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah cried out, woe, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips. That's what happens when you see a king on a throne. What if I told you that I wanted you to meet someone, didn't tell you one single thing about it, and I brought you up to this palace surrounded by guards and soldiers, and I walked you inside, and I walked you to a door, and I opened up the door, and there was a king on a throne, a king on a throne. I want you to meet the king. How would you feel? What questions are you going to start to ask yourself? Am I dressed correctly? Look at how I am. By the way, seriously, look at how I'm dressed right now. This is awful. That doesn't seem right for a king. Um, how do I address the king properly? I can't, am I supposed to bow, genuflect, get on my knees? Get, I don't know what to do. I've never been around a king before. Does he even care to meet me? Of course not. Do I need a gift? By the way, speaking of a gift, what do you get a king? Doesn't a king have everything? What could you possibly give a king? That's a good question. And we might say to ourselves, I'm coming empty-handed. This is going to be the worst possible situation, except that Psalm 29 might suggest glory. That's what you give a king and throne to buck. Give him glory and strength. Ascribe to him the glory due his name. Our mandate is to give. We're to give God the glory that he deserves. So, I mean, use your voice. Speak to the glory of God. When you are busy glorifying something else, and if you just be honest, you're doing that a lot about other things, you brag about those things. That's what we ought to do as Christians. We ought to be bragging about God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be, bra- that, that's, that's glorifying. Say to yourself and to other people true things about God. The only words actually uttered in this psalm are not from God. They're from the worshipers in the temple. The only words spoken in Psalm 29 are people saying, glory. This unusual psalm gives us one more motive for giving glory to God. God gives something too. Verse 11, he gives strength and he gives peace. If it were not enough that God should just be glorified for just being who he is, Eternal, infinite, all-powerful, creator of heaven where he sits, but also creator of oceans and mountains and forests and deserts. He should be glorified because he gives. He's a giving God. He's gracious. He gave his one and only son for us. Specifically, God gives what you need so badly right now. I really am convinced of this. I mean, right now, these days, strength and peace. Those are two things that you feel are in short supply in your life. Okay, three things I want you to do. Here's what you're going to do this week. Number one, be consumed with the glory of God. Be consumed with the glory of God. 
the first question of the Westminster Catechism is, what's the chief end of man? Presbyterians, what's the answer? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Make sure that's not a cliche. Don't become complacent about that. Be obsessive about considering how every activity should be done for or leveraged for the glory of God. We're told here to worship the Lord. Worship comes from the words worth-ship. Like it or not, we worship what we give great worth to. God is the most worthy person in the universe. He's worth our worship. Ascribing glory to God is just as powerful also without words as with them. That is the way we live our lives ascribes glory to God. Seeing the glory of God in our lives is as important as speaking the glory of God. So then how are we going to live? By the way, this is why your neighbor, who thinks you're a nice person, I'm sure, but, but doesn't see the glory of God. That's your fault. That's on you. It's on me. Right? So young people, when you play basketball or soccer, God is worthy of your best effort. When you teach or care for children, God is worthy of your best effort. When you take classes, God is worthy of your best effort. I said that all that for the, the young people and the teachers at this, we start school. Remember that for all of us. When you work, whatever you do, God is worth your best effort. And when you sing and pray and serve, God is worthy of your best effort. By the way, if coming together to worship God is for his glory, then it's worth to be here on time. Which, by the way, the service starts at 930 not at 9.35. If it's worth you doing it, it is worth doing it for the glory of God. Number two, be a better hearer. Be a better hearer. Practice listening to God. Study your Bible more. Take more classes from Southwick Bible Institute. Limit social media. Sort of just be, be more quiet. The heavens declare the glory of God, so pay attention. Be careful about listening to people who always say, God told me this, or the Spirit led me to do this, unless you know them to be people immersed in the written word of God. Don't forget Jesus' famous words in his parable of Matthew 25. Let me just read part of it, okay? At the end of the age, the Son of Man will say to those on his left... Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then Jesus will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment of the righteous into eternal life. You guys, the cry of the poor and the needy and the lost, their cry is the voice of the Lord. Don't ask if you're supposed to help the lost know the gospel or if you're supposed to help the sick or the lonely or the discouraged. Their very presence in front of you can be the voice of the Lord. 
We all have got to be better hearers of the voice of the Lord. But thirdly, be encouraged. If God sits enthroned, then from his perspective, the battle's already over. Victory is won. From God's perspective, the future is set. God wins. The person who is at the right hand of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive because he rose again and defeated death. He's sitting because his work of atonement is finished. Nothing more for him to do. Rather than a defeat, the cross of Jesus secures the victory. So if you know your Bible, then you know that God is going to bring final judgment at the end of the age when Jesus returns. But be encouraged, y'all, that God is acting as judge now. He can show patient mercy and judge simultaneously. It's you and I that can't do that. He's doing both of those. Did you know that Psalm 711, by the way, says God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. God is busy being God. Be encouraged by that. I'm almost positive that the two things you feel are in short supply are strength and peace these days. My own observation of myself and most of you is that you look and act like you're kind of running out of gas. For some of you, the only passion you display is anger. Anger from something coming out of either Washington, D.C. or the CDC. Let's be passionate about the glory of God. Psalm 29 sources our strength and peace in being consumed with the glory of God. Pray with me, please. Father, an interesting psalm you wrote. We do need to ascribe you the glory that is due your name. That makes absolutely perfect sense to me. Now, why, Father, am I struggling with that? My brothers and sisters are struggling with that. Help us. If it thunders or lightnings in the next week because it's summertime and that's typical, would you remind us who you are, how powerful you are? But in anything that we're seeing going on in the world, Father, speak to us. There's so many ways that we need to be listening to you. Oh, Father, please help redeem or help me to remove some of these distractions and hear the voice of the Lord. Make us remember that you're on your throne, interceding for us by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our sins. We have peace with God. We are reconciled. Everything is going to be summed up in you. And we're glad about that. We pray, Lord, for those who have walked into our service this morning. We're so glad they're here, but they don't know you as Savior. They're probably religious, Lord, but that's not the same thing. Help them to see and hear your voice. Pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.